Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times best-selling author and award-winning environmental reporter, Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida. Craig and I record our podcast every Thursday. We publish episodes on Tuesday. So every Thursday, there's a brand new column by Craig on the Florida Phoenix website, floridaphoenix.com. And this week, you know, Craig, you're a journalist. You like to, you know, we talk, we've done an episode about sunshine laws in Florida, but there, there's one instance in Florida where, where even you, uh, journalist extraordinaire, like being kept in the dark, but uh, that's at risk. Yeah, well, and and let me explain. The uh, former president of Dark Sky International, a group that works to keep skies dark so you can see the stars, mm-hmm. do astronomy, that kind of thing. She contacted me and said she was really concerned about a batch of bills going through the legislature right now that not only are pro, they're, they're not only pro-development, they're actually anti-local government. So that mm-hmm. basically the developers get whatever they wanted and the local governments can't say no. And so I was writing about uh, how that's going to, you know, really vanquish a lot of the dark sky areas in Florida that developers will turn into, you know, uh, strip shopping centers, parking lots, uh, storage areas, all with, you know, bright shining lights that uh, that take away that experience of en- enjoying the night sky. Yeah. And, and beyond human recreation, darkness is required for migrating birds. Wildlife. Most, yeah, most birds yeah. migrate at night. Uh, lights are hell on insects. Most moths and, and pollination occurs at night. We're going to talk in our episode today about one simple thing you can do to lessen your footprint on the environment. Maybe the easiest is just turn your damn lights off. Turn yeah. Yeah. your lights off. And what, what, I mean, obviously an individual doing that is fine. What you're talking about is massive housing developments and shopping centers and strip malls and, and convenience stores, the ones with this like ultra fluorescent light that, that look like, you know, you can see them from five miles away coming down the interstate. And I, you know, reading this article at floridaphoenix.com, you know, you've got a, a, a great perspective here with all the time you've spent in this state, spent covering news in the legislature in this state where, you know, we're, we're going back here to the, to the eighties and nineties in some instances, when did when did you notice that that worm really begin to turn where it was like all this legislature does is the bidding of developers? You know, I follow the legislature close enough every, you know, not every, but man, alive, almost every bill, it seems, has something to do with advantaging developers over local governments, citizens, uh, you know, animals, whatever the case may be. When did that happen? Uh, I think you really started seeing that under Rick Scott when he was governor, the eight years that he was governor. You know, the, one of the first acts he took was to, and the legislature aided him in this, was to dismantle our growth management agency, the, the Department of Community Affairs, in the name of jobs. And, uh, you know, once that's gone, then you've got nobody directing where the growth should go. I mean, the local governments have comprehensive plans, zoning, and so forth. The developers come in and say, I want you to change your plan and benefit me. And so every time they've been told no, it's like somebody's been taking notes. OK, this is something we need to get rid of. We need to get rid of the ability to say no. Mm-hmm. We need to, you know, we need to tie their hands. We need to strengthen the Burt Harris Act and take away their ability to charge impact fees. And so all of those things have happened. And that's just it's just been snowballing and to the point where some of the measures that are in place now. Uh, one of the people I talked to from a thousand friends of Florida said, 
this is this is it. This is the death of growth management in Florida. Mm. FloridaPhoenix.com. All right, we've got a new way for you to uh, help support the podcast. Craig and I are both uh, freelancers. So what that means is we work for ourselves. We're self-employed. We work from home. We uh, eat what we kill, so to speak. <laughs> and that's uh, a hustle. You know, Craig is is obviously writing the Florida Phoenix columns. He's writing books. He's writing articles for you know Washington Post and uh, and Smithsonian. I'm uh, working on the podcast as well. I've got my own seagreatart.art website where I'm selling advertisements. I'm writing art stuff for Forbes.com and different magazines. You know, my I, I just did my taxes. My stack of W nines was like a half inch thick of you know five hundred <laughs> bucks from here, a thousand bucks from there, and six thousand yeah. from here, and this and that. And I know your situation is is the same, Craig. So we wanted to give folks who enjoy this podcast and the now nearly one hundred and fifty episodes episodes we've done since the summer of 2020, an opportunity to say thanks, uh, pat us on the back, support us in our work bringing to light these uh, stories about Florida. So Craig and I have launched a Patreon page, and I'm sure most of you, uh, many of you are familiar with Patreon anyways. You can be a patron. That's that's where the name comes mm-hmm. from, and you can support us with you know, five dollars, ten dollars, twenty dollars, whatever you feel like uh, would uh, be an appropriate tip for our uh, service in producing this podcast. I'm going to put a link down in the show notes to our Patreon page, and if you'd like to contribute, great. If not, this is not a guilt trip. Don't feel bad. Don't uh, take on extra work hours or you know start <laughs> uh, going around collecting cans on the side of the interstate. But yeah, if you've got it and you want to uh, support the podcast, that's an opportunity uh, to do it. And this came from um, an email you got recently, Craig. Yeah, from one of our one of our listeners. Somebody said, listen, I'm really enjoying your podcast. I'm learning a lot. And things I thought I knew about Florida, turns out I didn't know much at all. And I want to say thank you how can I send you money? And of course, you know, like, well, we want to, we want to encourage you to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so that's why he's, we came up with the idea of the Patreon. So. Yeah. Patreon.com backslash welcome to Florida. Again, I'll put the link down in the show notes. Think it over. You know, if you're like, Hey man, yeah, I'd, I'd really get a lot out of this uh, five, 10 bucks. Uh, no big deal to me. That's great. When we get 20 Patreons, Craig and I are going to release a special bonus episode of the show just to our Patreons at patreon.com. So check that out down in the show notes. Think it over. If you've you've got it, great. If not, just keep listening, and we definitely appreciate that as well. All right. Our guest this week is Julie Albert. She is the Right Whale Conservation Program Coordinator for the Marine Resources Council, why are we talking about right whales, Craig? Okay, I have to admit, I'm very excited about this because uh, right whales come to Florida on a regular basis, come to the waters off our East Coast to give birth to their calves. And this is on my Florida bucket list. I want to see a right whale. I still mm-hmm. haven't seen one. They were, they were When I came up and visited you yeah. uh, not long ago, we kept hearing there were right whales off the coast. But they were too far out. You couldn't see them. But uh, I want, I've been wanting to do a right whale podcast for quite a while, and I'm glad Julie's finally able to, to talk to us about yeah. this. Yeah, uh, Fernandina, Fernandina Beach, where I am, is right whale uh, central in 
Florida every November, early November, is the right whale, North, and we should be specific here, North Atlantic right whale, the North Atlantic right whale festival annually here in Fernandina Beach, early November, all sorts of conservation organizations from around the state come and there's, you know, food and music and booths and that kind of thing. It's a, it's a fun time. If you're looking for something to do, I'll put links uh, to that in the show notes as well. All right. North Atlantic right whales are the topic this week. Julie Albert is our guest. Julie, I, I think a lot of people have no idea that that right whales come to visit Florida on a regular basis. How how often are they here and how long do they stay? The whales, I mean, not the people. Mm-hmm. The people. <laughs> I think you're right. A uh, good majority of people here in Florida have no idea that we have right whales here. They are only here in the winter time. They do like our water temperatures when it's colder outside for us. Because their wintertime water temperatures mimic what it is in the summertime in the Northeast. So any of the pregnant females that are coming down here to give birth have warmer waters to help their calves because they're born without any blubber. And they'll Ah. stay here for a few months. And so our typical season is mid-November through mid-April. I'm in Brevard County, which is where Cape Canaveral is, where that's basically the southern point of their critical habitat. And our busiest months are January and February for sightings. But a lot of the time, like we have no idea how long the whales are going to stay because it's, it's completely weather and temperature dependent. So El Nino plays a part. La Niñas play a part. Water temperatures are always playing a part. Uh, this year we were very slow this far south. Uh, We were busy during the end of December to end of January timeframe, maybe a little bit into February, and then we were done. So North Florida had about the same. They were seeing humpbacks and a handful of right whales by the mid to end of February, but I think a lot of them cleared out early and they did spend a lot of time this year in Georgia and the Carolinas. Is it only the calving females who come down this way? At one point, we thought that might be the case. But when individuals started being identified and we could figure out who we were looking at, we realized that, no, not necessarily. We had non-pregnant females that came here, some of whom might have been acting as midwives to the pregnant (laughs) females. The males here, we see yearlings, which are the one-year-olds that will come back to the calving ground with or without their mother. Uh, just depends on the individual. We get a little bit of everything, males, females, old, young, just a, a smattering. <laughs> uh, how far offshore are they generally? Or how close to shore, I should ask. Yeah, I'm like, it depends on your definition. I mean, we could see them anywhere from 10 to 20 miles offshore, and that's where the aerial survey teams come in. But we can also have them 200 yards offshore. Wow. It just depends. Yeah, and and we coordinate a volunteer sighting network of people who live on the coast and recreate on the beach or work on the beach. And there are lookout points for us. So if they do come in right behind the wave break, which is pretty common, uh, usually we hear about it because we train people on what to look for and how to report it. You talk about what to look for. I live in Fernandina Beach, and my mom was able to go down to Little Talbot Island State Park and see one of the humpbacks from shore just, you know, with binoculars. Uh, How do they 
the, the North Atlantic right whales? How do you identify them as opposed to what other whales might be out there? That's a good question. There are very recognizable physical characteristics that you can look for that will definitely help you tell them apart from other whales. Um, the humpback whales are the most common ones to see other than right whales. And one of the big differences is that right whales do not have a dorsal fin on their back hmm. that sticks yeah. up like dolphins and sharks have. So if it's near the surface, you know, you would be able to tell that there was something there. And that's actually one of the reasons why they get struck by vessels a mm. lot is because if they're sitting right below the surface and there's nothing there to indicate to a boater that there's an animal there, then it can be fairly common for them to get struck by a boat, just like the manatees do yeah. here in Florida. Uh, but all other whale species that we're going to see here have a dorsal fin, whether it's big or small. Uh, humpbacks have one. It is really small. It's pretty short. So if you're not looking for it, you might miss it. But right whales also have a black tail, whereas humpbacks have a lot of white on the underside. So we're looking for black tails, black pectoral flippers on the sides of the body. Humpback whales have very long, skinny, white flippers. So if you can remember which is which, we're looking for like short, stubby, and black versus long, skinny, and white. So if they happen to roll over and wave at mm -hmm. you with their pectoral <laughs> flipper, that should be fairly easy to figure out. But a lot of times they don't cooperate that much. So we also look for the white callosities, which are really rough bumps on their head. So if they're sitting at the surface and they're not being active, rolling around or tail slapping or anything like that, um, we can usually see their head stick out of the water a little bit. So if you can make out those white patches, um, that's a good giveaway. And then they also have a V-shaped blow. A lot huh. of times they might be far enough out where you can't make out any physical characteristics of their body, but they do need to come to the surface to breathe. So we tell people to look for a blow that comes out. It looks like it goes in two different directions. Mm -hmm. So it's shaped. Now, why are they called right whales? Is there a story behind that? Oh, there's always a story. Right whales <laughs> actually got their name from the whalers who dubbed them the right whales to hunt. That was because they, they stay so close to shore. They were easy to find and easy to kill because of that. They float in when they were dead because they have the thickest blubber of any whale species out there. So they floated easily. It made it very easy for them to bring into shore and process. And then once they did process it, they got more oil and baleen out of these animals than any other whale species that they could hunt. And a lot of them were a lot farther offshore and more difficult to catch. So they got a lot of bang for their hunting buck, so to speak. Yeah. Which leads us into my next question about their numbers, because now they're uh, critically endangered officially, I believe. The, the numbers are, from what I've read in the the few hundred individuals total. And it seems like their attractiveness to the hunting trade for whale oil, and, and you know, I guess this goes back to the, to the 19th century is what started their numbers declining to where we are today? Uh, I think it goes back a lot farther than that. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's documentation that goes all the way back to the 1500s hmm. of 
Indians here in Florida hunting whales near the coast. So it's very likely that those were probably right whales as well. Yeah, I mean, the official numbers right now are from 2021. That was the last full year they have data from that was compiled. And the official population size is at about 340 individuals. Wow. And even though they've been internationally protected since the 1930s, uh, even though they're not being hunted commercially, we're still basically hunting them by accident because their biggest threats are still humans. And it's entanglements in commercial fishing gear and strikes by vessels, big or small. They're no longer the subject of active hunting, though, right? It's Correct. not like Japanese vessels come over here and harpoon them. I heard about, I don't know if it's true, that you guys do still use a form of a harpoon in order to do DNA identification. Is that correct? Um, I wouldn't call it a harpoon. Uh, it's, it's an arrow with a hollow tip that is shot oh. with a crossbow. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I mean, biopsies of skin and blubber are taken for DNA studies, and it'll take a plug out about an inch long and about the diameter of a pencil. And they're able to not only sex the animals, but they can do maternity and paternity testing on it and other studies that could involve, you know, like genetic defects, for lack of a better word, or if there's anything going on in a particular line. But I don't know how intent they are on doing that. But I know the genetics is big as far as determining which animals are reproductive. I, I would hate to be the first person to go. Hmm, let me try shooting a shooting a a, a crossbow at one of these, yeah, <laughs> one of these animals. <laughs> How close can I get to do that? <laughs> We've actually had people reporting the biopsy process to our hotline. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. well, I guess we taught people well. You know, let us know if anybody's <laughs> bothering the whales. And I actually took a call once where somebody had said there's this boat that's getting really close to some whales out here and it looks like you're going to shoot it with a bow and arrow. And I'm like, oh, I know what you're looking at. It's okay. You talked about the right whales not having a dorsal fin, so you can't see them when they're up near the surface, which is a similar problem, like you mentioned, with the manatees. Now, manatee boat strikes are often from recreational vehicles, uh, recreational boaters, leisure craft. But with the right whale, I don't think that's the case because they're offshore and not a lot of, just, you know, weekend boaters go offshore. What are the boats that are hitting and killing these whales? It could be anything. I understand it's been documented that a vessel as small as 33 feet has killed a right whale before. Wow. So it can be the recreational boaters. Two winters ago, we had a mother and calf both get struck at the same time by a 56 foot, 56 or 54 foot commercial fisherman that was coming into St. Augustine Inlet. And it was dusk and they were sitting just below the surface. But um, for vessels that were 65 feet and greater, they're required to slow to 10 knots. And so he didn't fall into that category, but he was traveling, I think I heard 22 to 24 knots. And that was a big part of why those animals died was because if he had been going slower, the injuries probably would not have been as severe. 
So it's not necessarily the big cruise ships and tankers and container ships that do a lot of damage. It could be small recreational boaters as well. And it's illegal to be within 500 yards of a North Atlantic right whale. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, the more yeah. distance we can give them, the better off they're going to be. The old, it's not the size of the bullet, it's the speed uh, analogy. So yep. what, and, and I've read some about this, uh, where are we at with efforts to slow those smaller craft down so they pose less of and small i mean we're talking 56 feet is still a big boat that's not like me hopping in and uh taking the pontoon out for cocktails with the, the family i mean it's still a big boat but you know like you say it's not a tanker ship or carnival you know uh abuse of the seas you know whatever their their newest uh line is <laughs> what um what is being done to slow the smaller vessels down uh that's funny um Abuse of the seas. Sorry, you sidetracked me there. That was a good one. A lot of it is education, mm -hmm. uh, public education. I know we've got uh, the U.S. Coast Guard Auxiliary uh, does boating safety classes, and they're starting to incorporate right whale education in their safety classes, just saying, hey, you know, at this time of year, you really have to be vigilant when you're on the water because there are things to look for that, you know, not only are you going to hurt them, but they could injure you as well. Um, oh, that's true. Lost their vessels, lost their lives because of vessel whale collisions. The federal government did propose changing the speed rules. Um, I had mentioned earlier that it applied to vessels 65 feet and greater. Uh, they're talking about reducing that to 35 feet and up. So it is going to include a lot more smaller boats. And having a million registered boaters in Florida, you know, there are a lot of people that are not going to be happy about that because they just want to go out and go fast. <laughs> so yeah. um, there is going to be a time period when they're, they're not going to be able to. Uh, we don't know when that's going to go into effect. Uh, they put it out there. There was a public comment period for it, which came and went. Uh, I think it ended at the end of October of 2022. But um, there's a process of going through all the comments and deciding if they need to change anything and then getting the final rule published in the Federal Register. And we don't even know if that's going to be done by the end of this calendar year. I'm not sure when it's going to happen, but we need to keep educating people mm -hmm. that there are things out there that could hurt them if they're not careful. So when the whales are here in Florida, what what do they do? What do they eat? What sort of activities do they pursue? I mean, other than obviously giving giving birth. Right. Um, because there are animals down here who are not pregnant. So as yeah. far as we know, we don't think they're eating at all. Really? Um, nobody has ever found the specific copepods that they prefer in their diet here off the coast of the Southeast U.S. Uh, we've also not observed feeding behavior. You know, they typically don't have their mouths open here, so it's kind of hard to feed if their mouth is closed. Wow. They have heard um, there might have been some instances where people might have observed defecation, which doesn't happen unless you're eating. So, I mean, it's going to be looked into, but it's really hard to say you know, whether there's any food here for them at all. Huh. It's just assumed that they live off their blubber, which is what they spend the summer building up 
in the Northeast. Uh, that, um, yeah. Nobody's observed mating behavior here, as far as I know. Really? Um, I usually just tell people they, they seem to be snowbirds, just like the people. They come down for the warm water <laughs> and hang out Snow for whales. a while and, <laughs> and then go back when it gets too hot. Wow. Well, where, where are they then? Uh, you, you mentioned this a little broadly. When they're not in Florida, where are they? Yeah, I mean, when I say the Northeast, I'm talking about Cape Cod Bay. Uh, Stellwagen Bank. In recent years, the whales have gone as far north as the Gulf of St. Lawrence in Canada to find their food. So um, the Mid-Atlantic is basically just a, a transitional part of their migration where they just pass through as they go back and forth. And I understand you were talking about fishing tackle entanglements being another threat to the right whale. There's been uh, news stories recently, efforts for and against adjusting the way lobster fishermen in the Northeast uh, bring their pots in. Can you tell us a little bit about that effort and, and how uh, the lobster fishermen are uh, and their their traditional ways of, of gathering are a little at odds with uh, protecting the right whale? Yeah, that's a hot topic right now. Yeah, I mean, there are generations and generations of lobster fishermen that go back hundreds of years. And they're like, you know, if it was good enough for my great grandpa and my grandpa <laughs> and my dad, it's good enough for me. But the way lobsters are fish have changed a lot since then. Traps are stronger. Ropes are stronger. They're no longer using wood traps with hemp rope. Um, they're using polypropylene now and things that do not break nearly as easily. So that becomes an issue when an animal gets entangled in it because then they can't get out of it. The vertical lines in the water column that connect the trap on the ocean floor to a buoy at the surface is what the problem is as far as how the entanglement is initiated. We think it happens when they're feeding and when their mouth is open and they encounter one of those vertical ropes, it gets stuck in their mouth and then they close their mouth and realize they're entangled and they spin sometimes to try and get out of it when in reality it's really only making it worse. Yeah. So if we can get the ro the vertical ropes out of the water column, that would reduce the risks, reduce the risk significantly. I know a lot of people hate to say, you know, we're not targeting people. We're not targeting fishermen. We're not targeting a fishery. We're targeting the risk, which is the ropes themselves. So if the fishermen just used a different method to catch the lobsters, then there wouldn't be an issue. Yeah. So that's what we're trying to work towards is just getting them to use different equipment. And there's a lot of research out there. There are a lot of types of equipment that is available, but it is expensive right now because none of it's being mass produced. So um, there's a lot of talk about having the government subsidize the use of that gear. Instead of putting a bunch of money into saving the whales, maybe we could outfit the fishermen with some of this gear on their vessels. Uh, there are a number of fishermen that have been helping to test the gear for several years now. Uh, it works great. They love it. They're like, hey, you know, if this is a way that I can keep fishing when they're issuing closures to everybody else, then I'll do it. It's great. Yeah. And the government and the manufacturers are also getting feedback from the fishermen 
on what needs to change with the gears so that it can make it more user-friendly. Yeah. So there's a lot of that going on. I think the ropeless or pop-up fishing gear that is sometimes called is definitely going to be a game changer as far as not only keeping fishermen fishing, but also, you know, making sure the whales don't get entangled in the first place. And yeah. and animals other than whales are getting entangled in the gear as well. Mm-hmm. We're seeing sharks and turtles getting entangled and dying. So it's it's not just a one species thing, you know, and it also happens to many other whale species as well. Yeah. And when we're talking about 340 individuals, we're talking, we're not talking about, well, is it, is it, is it people and, and jobs? Of course, the, the number one motivator for anything in America, jobs, uh, money, uh, we're talking about a species. Okay. So we're talking about extinction versus someone being able to continue a, a, a way of life and the, well, it's always been done that way is probably the worst reason to continue doing anything. And there isn't an industry or a job or a career in this country that doesn't have some sort of accommodation somewhere for human health or public safety or safety of animals or clean air or clean water. So the idea that that the lobster fishermen are, are some sort of protected class of individual that doesn't have to uh adjust their way of making a living at all uh over the past 250 years just falls down with me and 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 I always generally side on the the animals case here but again we're not talking about why well, a lot of animals are dying we're talking about there is an extinction risk here possible it's not the difference between having a thousand right whales or 500 or 2500 it's the idea of this species will be gone forever. Can you guys not use the ropes when there are other <laughs> ways to bring up the pots? No, nah, we really can't. Because because my, <laughs> my great granddad in Bar Harbor did it this way. What what a what a selfish um human exceptionalist argument. And, and um I'll I'll get off my soapbox here, Craig. You can, you can no, I think it's great that you did that so that I didn't have to. so um so you mentioned the the network of volunteers how how big is the network and how active are the are the folks doing it oh gosh um what we the most volunteers we've had in our network on the east coast of florida has been about 800 Mm, wow that's great Um, it is great and we just keep teaching and training people every year we do up to about 30 classes in just a couple months training people on what to look for and why it's important and how they can help, even if they don't know anything about these whales. Mm-hmm. And what I think is also important is that you don't have to live on the water to be able to participate. Um, a veterinarian, Michael Moore with um, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, recently put out a great book called We Are All Whalers. And I like the title. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's true because no matter where you live in the U.S., you can shop local. You can try and avoid buying things that are imported. You can pay attention to where your seafood comes from and how it's caught. As long as we're relying on Amazon and all of our products being made in China, those products get to the U.S. by traveling by ship. 
And every time a ship crosses an ocean, there is a risk for striking whales. Mm -hmm. So the less they have to do that, the better, which is, you know, a great thing to remind people of is just by, you know, shopping at farmer's markets or paying, you know, buying a U.S. car or anything. I mean, I've gone into the supermarket, into the produce department and looked at where some of that stuff comes from. And I'm like, you know. I don't think I need these oranges from Africa. I live in Florida, mm-hmm. for God's sake. I think yeah. I'm going to buy the Florida oranges, you yeah. know? Beyond whales, when you start talking about fossil fuel emissions and factory farming, one of the, and, and it's it's not cheap. I'm not going to, you know, cover this over. Mm-hmm. Shopping at farmer's markets is expensive compared to the supermarket. But uh, one of the simplest things anyone can do to help the planet in a hundred different ways, not just whales, but from whales, you know, down to to insects is shop at the farmer's market instead of the grocery store. It really uh, makes a big difference over time, the quality of the products and how they're produced versus uh, like you talk about the the mass distribution and global uh, shipping networks. How do you, how does someone become one of these uh, uh, whale observers? Oh, wow. So we advertise in papers and through social media about when we have classes coming up and where they are. Uh, really, no prerequisites required. You don't need to know anything. We target people who are on the beach often, which helps. So um, any homeowners who are on the beach or condominium owners, especially people who live up off the ground a few floors, have a great vantage point. Yeah, um, so anybody that goes and sits out on their balcony with their coffee every morning is, is <laughs> an excellent person to come help. You, there's no age requirement, no time dedication requirement, at least for what I do. We do have a group of people out of Marineland um, who are with the Marineland Right Whale Project. They do have opportunities to go out on surveys, which are time restricted. So if they want to go walk around up and down beaches or stay uh, at specific survey points and watch for 20 minutes and then go somewhere else, um, they're putting in an effort to try and increase the chances that a sighting Mm -hmm. actually happens. But most of the people who report to us are opportunistic sighters. So these are the people who are going to go to the beach anyway, and they just happen to be in the right place at the right time and saw one. And we're like, oh, my gosh, what am I looking at? And they often (laughs) don't even know that they need to report it until they look up online what they could have been seeing. And Mm -hmm. then they realize there's a hotline number. Is that number three? You know, can that information, that contact information be found through the Marine Resources Council website, or is that Fish and Wild, Florida Fish and Wildlife? Where do people find that it's, number if they see one? It's on both of them. Eight 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 nine seven whale is a great number to call here in Florida. NOAA has a hotline number that's eight seven seven whale help. Um, that can be used for like dead, injured, and entangled animals. We all talk to each other and collaborate. So no matter how the sighting is reported it's going to get to the right people. So um, we've got those two phone numbers. There is an app you can put on your phone called Whale Alert. um, So that boaters, even offshore, can take pictures. The GPS will be pulled off their phone. Um, They can upload data on what they see. And even if they don't have a connection, it'll all go to someone as soon as they come back in. Hmm. So there are a number of ways that people can report whale sightings. 
but we just need people to know that we want to hear about it in the first place. Yeah. Has the, has the number of individuals steadily declined or has, have there been cliff events essentially where it, it seemed to precipitously drop in, in, a, in a short period of time? That's a good question. So we're talking about over decades. Mm -hmm. Um, They did a fairly good job of increasing the population size throughout the 90s. Increasing, really? Okay. Yeah, it, it went up steadily. And once 2010 hit, it started to drop off. And I'm not aware of anything significant that might have happened in 2010 unless it was a season where these animals just stopped finding food, uh, which is entirely possible. Uh, Like I said, water temperatures have increased and they had to move into Canada to find their food source. So if these animals aren't healthy enough because they're not finding enough food, then there's less of a chance that they're going to be reproductively successful because if they can't maintain their own body, they certainly can't maintain um, carrying a fetus to full term. So I think that's been one of the big ones. Um, The continued entanglements is another big factor. It's been found that even when females are not entangled anymore, the stress of the experience really takes a toll on their body. And so the calving intervals have increased quite a bit. And I've been doing this 24 years. And back when I started, these whales were giving birth every three to five years. And now they could be waiting 10 or more. Wow, that's a long time. For their next calf. And they only have one. It's not like they have a litter. Like that would Mm -hmm. be great. But they don't. Um, And here we've had seasons where we might have 12 calves or 15 or 18. You know, back in the 90s, our average calf count for a year was 22. And our two record years were 31 and 39. You do the math. Let's just make it easy and say there are 400. Say it's a little more than people think. Well, half of those are going to be male, half female, right? So obviously the males aren't having, you know, unless we've got a real science story on our hands here. Uh, Some are (laughs) going to be too young. Some are going to be too old. So now we're down way below 200. And they have a child, uh, an offspring every, say, five to 10 years, only one at a time. Yep. Wow. I mean, that that is, uh, oh boy, I did not realize the birth rate was that slow and low in number. That really, and again, that puts into perspective how precious each one of these individuals are. Oh my God. Exactly. Even though we're having lower calving rates and numbers for each season, every time we find a new calf, we're like, hey, you know what? We'll take it because yeah, it's another sure. one. Every single one counts. But unfortunately, like in 2018, there were zero calves born to the population. And that has never happened before. Wow. So when I have volunteers saying, hey, we had a good year this year. I heard we have 15. I'm like, well, it was better than 2018, but it's still not good. We believe we need more than 50 calves per season to get this population to grow and with only about 70 breeding females, that's just not going to happen. 70. And again, that's one every one birth every hopefully five years of those right. 70. Man. Yeah. 
Let me ask you a question. I'm basing this question based on what happened with Florida Panthers in the 90s. The population had dwindled down to about 20, and they were having problems with genetic defects as a result of inbreeding. We haven't reached that point with the right whales, have we? I have not heard of anything major. We okay, know good. right now that the biggest killers of right whales is humans. Right. You would expect there to be a genetic bottleneck, but I don't know that it's ever been proven. Uh, I understand there was one research paper that was put out where bones of a right whale were found that were 400 years old. And the genetics came back being almost identical to the ones we have now. So it really hasn't changed a whole lot in 400 years, but we are killing them off faster than they can reproduce. Mm -hmm. So the thing we need to concentrate on is making sure they live long enough to become reproductively active. And this is the only population in the world of these, right? There's not like a population in the South Pacific or something that... Of this particular species, you're correct. There are two other populations of right whales. There are southern right whales in the southern hemisphere off like Australia, South Mm -hmm. America, and South Africa. There are also North Pacific right whales, but they've all been shown to be genetically different enough that they are their own species. Yeah. How are those populations doing? Uh, the Southern uh, that says it all kind well. of <laughs> there's, there's more than 10,000 Southern right whales. Oh, wow. Not have the same issues mm-hmm. that we have here. Uh, the North Pacific right whales have an Eastern and a Western population. The Eastern population off our Pacific coast, there's only about 30 animals. Wow. And one was recently spotted by the Monterey Bay Whale Watch Company, and, and that went viral on social media, which was great. Um, it's very rare to actually see one get spotted and documented and have it go to the right people. The Western population of North Pacific right whales is somewhere between 100 and 500. Nobody's really paying attention to them enough to know exactly what's going on with those guys, but yeah, all of the northern hemisphere right whales are not in good situations. Wow. Things aren't I right s- with the right whales. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I sense the, the connection might be the United States of America as their uh, habitat or near to it. Ah, uh, boy. Julie Albert is the conservation coordinator, conservation program coordinator with right whales for the Marine Resources Council, thank you so much for your work and your time joining us today. This has been great. Thank you again. Yeah, Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Uh, You you mentioned the Florida Panther, and I was going to ask you as as we finish up here, listening to Julie, I'm sure you're getting flashbacks from your work with the Panther and a lot of of what you heard and researched and experienced writing uh, writing that book. Well, yeah. I mean, because, you know, the, the fact is, once you get a certain population, they're breeding, the number of breeding members dwindles to a certain point and you've got you know fathers breeding with daughters mothers Mm -hmm. breeding with sons and then the result is genetic defects that prevent them from breeding at all and that's what they ran into with the panthers and one of the the cattail is the book we're talking about here which is sort of the origin story of this podcast if you want to go way Mm -hmm. back and listen to the uh introductory episode but unlike with panthers where they were able to bring some individuals from texas to florida and and crossbreed 
Um, no one's shipping whales from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic, uh, and, and and like Julie talked about, they're they're distinct species, so that that yeah. wouldn't work anyways. And boy, you start, yeah. Craig, you start doing the math, man. Uh, seventy breeding females, That's one birth every yeah. handful of years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Plus, of course, you know, if you did try to ship them, I think FedEx would charge extra. So <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Well, hey, if you're out there boating and see a right whale, take it easy. Give them a, a proper them welcome space. to yeah. Florida. Yeah. Welcome to Florida. <laughs>